In recent weeks, a wave of explosive civil unrest has swept across France, as young Frenchmen with roots in Africa and the Arab world have taken to the streets to express anger, grief, and frustration at the death of Nahal Marzouk, a 17-year-old boy who was shot point-blank by a police officer during a traffic stop. Nahel, who was ethnically Algerian and Moroccan, lived in one of Paris's notorious suburbs, or banlieue, where, for decades, a vicious cycle of racial profiling, over-policing, and distrust has pushed many of these young people to the margins of French society. Nahel's name has become a battle cry across the country as youth have taken to the streets to scuffle with police using fireworks and improvised incendiary devices, burned cars and buildings, and smashed up storefronts. Many, including the French government, have labeled the unrest riots and called for harsh penalties for the perpetrators and their families. They've also vehemently denied any accusations that the French police, or society at large, struggles with racism, instead claiming that the government sees all of the Republic's children as equal. This is The Lead, a New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Erin Claire Brown, New Lines North Africa editor, and I'm joined today by two guests who will help unpack just why France is turning a colorblind eye to the racial protests sweeping the nation. Sharazad Duha has been reporting on the ground around France for New Lines. Her story, The Roots of France's Riots, is on our website, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And Jean Beeman, Associate Professor of Sociology at UC Santa Barbara, is the author of the book Citizen Outsider, Children of North African Immigrants in France. Jean, Sherazad, welcome to The Lead. Jean, I believe that you actually start the first section of your book with that famous quote from Manuel Val, the, that the Republic makes no distinction among its children. Maybe you can walk us through what the ideal vision of that is. Why is it that France, like France's Republican ideals are nominally colorblind? And then we can talk a little bit about the lived reality of those who are ethnically non-white in France. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me for this really important conversation. So I think, you know, to understand any issues related to identity or difference within France, whether presently or historically, we have to go to the uh, French Republican model or the French or French Republicanism, which, you know, as you alluded to, sees no distinction or ostensibly sees no distinction among French citizens. So this is something that predates the French Revolution, but, you know, as a relates to racial categories became more salient in the Vichy regime when, you know, the use of racial categories in that context was used to round up Jewish citizens and deport them to concentration camps. And so among other things, the idea of racial categories as, you know, or racial statistics or ethnic statistics, as they refer to them in France, is seen as extremely dangerous. And relatedly, it's seen as dangerous for how it could or has historically divided French society. And so France really prides itself continually on not making distinctions between members of French society. So, you know, other societies such as the United States, which is often the sort of obvious example that's put, that's put forth, you know, where we do, speaking as an American, where we do have racial categories and mark these kind of distinctions is seen as antithetical to the kind of national cohesiveness that French republicanism is supposed to endeavor. So it's supposed to sort of say that 
no matter what your origins are, you're just as French as anyone else. I mean, that's the sort of ideology, that's a myth. And I think the last, I could talk about this forever, but the last thing I'll say about it is, I think it's also really important to, well, I guess I'll say, I, I don't think you could overstate how, perza- how pervasive that ideology is in French society today. Even in the French academy, many French academics believe the same thing and therefore find it very difficult or very strange even to talk about race and racism. You know, this is something that students are children are taught in schools in the French Republican system. So this is a very pervasive ideology that, you know, it's not historically just the case, but presently is very, is, is very active as well. That's so interesting. Could you maybe give another example, like outside of, you know, obviously we're going to be talking a lot about policing and, and that sort of thing, but where else do you see this kind of persistence in, in colorblindness in French society? So, I mean, I think in terms of not, in terms of census categories, in terms of not having official statistics, so that's a really main way that that comes forth. And so, you know, even in my own research, when people ask me, for example, how many Maghreban or Arab people are in France or how many Black people in France, like there's no actual answer that one can give outside, you know, tantamount to what we would be able to provide in the United States because they don't even recognize that as a category or as a box we can check on a form. Of course, I, you know, and I think we'll get to, this is not really the case in practice, but at the level of, you know, of the government, of the state as, as a whole, this is, this is how this ideology is enacted. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so you alluded to this, right, that those are the ideals, but they're actually pretty far from the, from the lived reality. So I want to bring Shahrazad in. You've reported from these neighborhoods and, and these communities before, and, and in fact, uh, I think you might even consider yourself a part of that uh, community. Can you tell us a little bit more about like what life is like on the ground for a non-white French citizen? So on the ground, life is sadly quite far from the ideals. I think it's important to um, remind ourselves first that the race question is very much tied to class here in France, because a lot of the communities we're talking about came to work in the factories in the 60s, 70s, and then later, and were put in the now infamous neighborhood that we call the banlieue, but also all over France in the sort of ma- at the margins of towns to work. In factories, so you have also this background to keep in mind that we're talking about people who are economically disenfranchised and disadvantaged. Um, And discrimination and racism is something that's been documented and reported on by many NGOs and human rights groups. So it would touch areas like work. So if your name is of quote-unquote immigrant uh, origin, so not your traditional Gaspar or Matteo, you are less likely to be called for an interview. It is the same for housing. It is it, it goes down all the way to finding a spot at a private beach at the south of France. You are less likely to be given a spot in the summer if you are of a certain background. And we're talking here Arab and Black, people of Arab and Black descent. and. In addition to those discriminations that have been talked about many times, you have a sort of climate politically where you are, where these communities are the subject of debates. They're really given a voice, so they really have a seat at the table, but they are often the subject of debates. And we've seen a shift with Macron where the language 
actually is now coming from the far right. So you will hear words from members of the government that before you will only hear from Marine Le Pen. I can give you a couple of examples, has talked about the idea of decivilization, so the idea that we're moving away from civilization, and it was implied that he was talking about the presence of the communities that we talked about, and Darmanin also talked about ensauvagement, which means that society would be getting wilder. So you hear these terms that are heavily connoted on the far right that have a colonial legacy as well, because we're talking about communities that were part of the French empire before and that were colonized by France before. And you have this link. And I think also the latest, the latest kind of example that shows that it's not just these communities that are targeted, but now anyone who would associate with ideas of production of these communities was a couple of years ago when Macron started an inquiry in what he called Islamo-leftism in universities and the academic world, and that created an upheaval. So it tells you, also, I think, a little something about the, the state of debate. So these communities are discriminated against, but also talked about as a threat or a danger uh, to society. And um, lastly, we'll talk about this there, the subject of constant harassment from the police, and I'll have many stories to tell you about that. Yeah, I want to get to that, but actually I want to I want to circle back to this idea that we're starting to hear the kind of language um, that's coming from from the far right. It's becoming more mainstream. One of the things that really struck me as I was listening to various broadcasts about this was was the use of the word savage, that these protests or these riots were savage. And and I think it's so it's so interesting to see that though most of these, I, I would venture to say most, and, and you know, either of you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most of these young people who are participating in these protests are French citizens, and they might even be second or third generation French citizens, but the same language is being applied to them that is often applied to migrants coming to European shores or trying to get to France. And, and I'm curious, Jean, are you noticing that trend? And, and what does that tell you about kind of the the situation for these these French citizens? Are they becoming even more pushed to the margins? Are they becoming even more of a, of a kind of outsider? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been conducting research on these topics for about 15 years, and it's very clear that you're seeing a worsening of not just the treatment of people in these communities, as you, as you alluded to, but also the sort of rhetoric or the discourse about people in these communities. So even people who are, you know, who are French themselves, who are born and raised in France, are still treated as if they're not citizens, as if they're outsiders, as if they're further marginalized. And this is, I think, something we have to understand as it relates to France's relationship or France's colonial project in much of these countries in North and West Africa. And so I think oftentimes France wants to sort of pretend that this colonial history never happened and that these people are not actually part of France, but they really are. And so their actual sort of, you know, being on the streets, they're living in France, they're voting, they're being part of French society is, see, is still seen, unfortunately, as a serious threat to their many white French counterparts. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's worth noting, you know, for for audience members who might not know that 
Algeria in particular wasn't even considered necessarily a protectorate, but it was a French overseas territory, the way that, you know, today we see the island of Reunion or, you know, French Guyana, that it was part of the French Republic. And yet, mm-hmm. uh, you know, any friend, anytime you, you run into sort of a, a, a French Algerian, it's still, France is really persistently trying to pretend like they're just Algerian, that they were never French in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we can't um, forget the very brutal Algerian War of Independence, which, among other things, included drowning of hundreds of Algerians in the Seine uh, River in Paris. So this is a very ugly part of French France's history that it really actively still tries to repress and avoid reckoning with. And so I think part of what we have to understand about what's happening in France presently is a failure for French society to acknowledge and reckon with reckon with its colonial history. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. I want to turn now to this idea of of the policing that's happening in these neighborhoods in these areas. You know, I read recently that this statistic that North African, Arab or black young men are up to 20 times more likely to be stopped by the police. And that's regardless of their education level, their financial status, you know, it's not just it's not just class-based or or education-based. Shahrazad, can you can you tell me what kind of impact does that persistent harassment have on a community? Like how do we see that that tension manifest in these neighborhoods? I think here it'd be important to make a distinction between generations because the young people that I've spoken to the past few weeks, so we're talking about people as young as 12, and most of them were between 15 to 25, up to 27, they were raised by the mothers to always carry their ID cards, to never answer to the police. So they, their, their fathers, their grandfathers had known this harassment. So they were taught from very early on that they would be subject to this and that they should be prepared and the stories that they tell is stories of harassment the fact that at 15 every time you'd go to the city center you'd be stopped that that's a story from a young man from marseille who's telling me every time i go to the city center i am stopped as if it wasn't my city as if i wasn't meant to be there so there's this real feeling of alienation of not being wanted but there's also this idea that they are a threat because often they're stopped and if you're 15 and the police automatically assumes that you may have a weapon on you and searches you again and again for a weapon that that is imprinted in your mind that you are a threat in the eyes of society. And a lot of the young men know that this will not happen to someone who is white. This will not, that does not happen to their white friends. In fact, some of them were telling me that when the police stops the whole group, they would search the the young black and Arab men, but they would not search the, the white, the white friends. And to add to this there's another layer it's not just the the frequency of it it's also the humiliations that go on during these stops that are quite traumatizing for these young people some people with some young men from Mulhouse, from here so the eastern of france we have to think that this is not just in paris or marseille it's not just the big cities even in the small towns that the same reality 
of being you know thrown against the wall and pat down twice a week every week it's almost a ritual they know it's going to happen they get insulted if they have you know a cap that is branded the the police would take it and throw it to the ground and spit on it uh, some have told me that they often slapped often beat up at the back of police vans but they know that they cannot go anywhere to complain because at the end of the day, it will be their word against the word of a police officer. And the word of a police officer will always be respected um, and will always have more value. So they have also internalized this feeling that they are not valued in society, that they are different, that they will always be treated differently and that they have to protect themselves and protect each other in front of that phenomenon. And also they have the sense that it will never stop. It will never end. That is just the reality they were born into. Third generation, if it didn't change for their fathers and grandfathers, there's no reason why it would change for them. And it's quite sad to see, you know, desperation in the eyes of young 20-something year-old man and yeah that, that is mostly the stories that yeah been told. can i can i jump in there absolutely yeah thanks i really appreciate your use of the term humiliation because i think that's really crucial into a lot of the work that these control identity or identity checks control checks do which is really to mark and i've written about this really to mark certain individuals in france as being suspect, as being suspicious, as being prone to criminality, as not being French as anyone else. And it's really a way that in the absence of, you know, France, you know, having official statistics about race or ostensibly, you know, seeing itself as colorblind, the police are often making these racial distinctions. And I think these identity control checks, like you just read, like you just mentioned, are one way that, that happens and one way that it reinforces to certain French people who, who are literally French, that they're not actually treated as French or they're not actually seen as French by their compatriots. And so this is not a, a case of, you know, the French police trying to minimize violence or control crime. Rather, they're really constructing a category of citizens who are not able to be fully included into mainstream society. Mm, I think that's so, that's so important to think about the ways in which, you know, we see we see that separation um, of citizens into different buckets. Even if there's not, you know, a racial categorization, it's still these young men are are told sort of persistently that they are dangerous, that they are a threat, that they are being perceived in in these ways. How does that affect? Does that I mean, does that have an effect on on outcomes in these communities? Or, or, you know. Jean, I was reading I was reading your book this week and and you start with a, a kind of story from from a young man who who you know sort of a local boy makes good right he 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 goes to to college in the east of France but has a real a real difficult time there do you want to tell us a little bit about perhaps that yeah I mean he was one of the many examples of people I interviewed for my my first book which among other things focused on middle-class adult children of Maghreban or North African immigrants in France. So these are often people who, these are people who were born and raised in France, but have achieved a particular kind of urban mobility vis-a-vis their immigrant parents and often are very socioeconomically successful, you know, are well-educated, have sort of stable middle-class jobs. Yet what was consistently the case in the in my research was that they often, despite their socioeconomic status and general well-being, were continually subject to various forms of racism at different levels of society and often continually t- mistreated 
very similar to their immigrant parents. So this is a way of thinking about how class mobility doesn't actually ensure that you'll be treated as French as anyone else because of France's long history and problem of racism and white supremacy. So even those who, you know, you know, quote unquote, do everything right are still kind of shot down or still reinforced that they never fully belong. Yeah. And for those that, that don't get that upward mobility, you know, I'm, I'm wondering this kind of long-term, you know, constant interaction with the police likely results in, in higher levels of, of, you know, arrests and convictions for small level crimes. Does that have an impact on, on communities' ability to get that uh, leverage for up, upward mobility. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that definitely makes kind of reinforces the barriers that are put in place to prohibit or to to actively discourage upward mobility among people in some of these communities. That's one other mechanism that takes place for sure. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, the way that that France has policed its its you know sensitive neighborhoods, the the banlieue, has changed dramatically over the last thirty years. I think in in around nineteen ninety eight there was an initiative put in place called the la police de proximité, the you know sort of local police. Essentially, officers needed to come from or live in the communities that they policed. But that ended in I think two thousand three, and we started to see almost immediately a series of negative impacts kind of culminating in in an instance in, in 2005. Shahrazad, I'm wondering if you can tell us the story a, a little bit about the death of um, of Ziad and Buna, these these two young men who were who, who died in 2005. Yes, so in 2005, so Ziad was 17 at the time and Buna was 15 and they were running away from one more uh, police check, one more police control and they ran into electricity substation to hide and they died uh, because they were electrocuted and what happened afterwards was the same kind of events that we saw uh, last week except they lasted um, for over two weeks and I think that if we have to compare what happened in 2005 and what happened last week, in five nights last week, a lot of observers said that the five nights of the past week were as intense as two weeks in 2005. And the reaction was also quite different because while you had this kind of discourse around you know, security by Sarkozy, who had a very famous sentence where he said, we, will, we need to wash la banlieue with Karcher. Is that something you'd say, you could say in English? It's mm. a, like a brand of a high pressure water hose. Yeah. Ah, okay. There you go. Yeah. Thank you. Jean. Water cannon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, but then Chirac tried to appease the situation and in his in his address he said that I remind every everyone who participated that you are children of the republic. And while we can criticize the the, the gap between this discourse and the reality the discourse today is is very different, and Macron does not remind the the young people who participated in those protests, revolt, or writing, whatever you want to call them, that they are children of the republic. Uh, and on the contrary, there's this will to uh, push them to the margins a little more to make them appear uh, as different. And a lot of people I have spoken to who have known 2005, of course, said that nothing nothing changed the lessons weren't learned but they also said that the response 
between 2005 and now is quite different. After 2005, there were some, you know, announcements of policy policy changes and uh, some money invested in the banlieue. A lot of the people on the ground in the banlieue said that they never saw the color of that money. But today, in 2023, the response is very different. And we can, I think, elaborate on this uh, later. But we're not talking about what we can do to reintegrate these people. We're not talking about what we can do to tackle any kind of inequality. Today, we're only talking about what happened as a security issue, as a, a threat to uh, the common order and something that needs to be dealt by the police and by the justice and no other means so far. And I think something that particularly shocked people that I spoke to is when the Minister of Interior and the Minister of Justice called the parents responsible. So they said that parents have a responsibility to educate their children and to not let them go out and, you know, riot and, and break things. And on the ground, parents were absolutely shocked by this. And they saw it as a as a will to take the context out of what's happening, to make it a, a, a problem of personal responsibility, as if one more time it was their fault that uh, this has happened and that it was not the result of decades of failing on the political level. Yeah, that's so, uh, you know, I just want to highlight that, that, that the government came out and said that they were that we're possibly considering fining the parents of young men who were who were caught doing this and and i think that's such a such a bitter particular like a bitter response to this kind of 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 action and i think you highlight that really beautifully with this idea that like this is yet another example of, of the systemic failings so i'm curious though you know you mentioned that after the the riots in 2005 there was money that was poured into, in, ostensibly poured into the the Banlu, right? There were supposedly like community centers built or libraries or that sort of thing. But France didn't actually have a racial reckoning after those events. And, and Jean, I'm wondering if you have any insights into why. Why there was not a racial reckoning? Yeah. Why was there not a racial reckoning after, yeah. after the events in 2005? Well, I think a lot of that goes back to where we started our conversation about the sort of power and pervasiveness of French republicanism. So it was much more, you know, convenient, quote unquote, to blame the people who were involved in the uprisings themselves and sort of frame those individuals as criminals, as scum, as, as was already stated, rather than have a broader sort of sociological examination as to the root causes of these uprisings and really name systemic uh, systemic police violence as as a as an example of systemic racism. So you know there wasn't a racial reckoning because France refuses to acknowledge race as as real. Um, instead, it frames these kinds of issues as you know, as I said before, an issue of criminality or an issue of you know class or people who are under poverty, under under advantage, disadvantaged or underprivileged, et cetera, rather than actually addressing race as an issue. So until France can sort of you know figure out how to go around that, there'll never be a racial reckoning, unfortunately. 
Yeah, you know, I think we're seeing that here we are nearly 20 years on and we're seeing basically a, a, the same pattern. You know, this young man, Nahel, was killed and, and immediately the police closed ranks. You know, they were saying that he was trying to drive away. You know, the, the police officer felt threatened. Of course, you know, later security of video footage showed that that none of that was true. The government has sort of defended itself. You know, there's and there and, and I think especially in, in the media and, and in government statements, there's this kind of major focus on the loss of property and infrastructure. Sharazat, you've been on the ground around France the last few weeks. Can you share some of some of your reporting and what you're hearing from these young men about why? Why are they out and, and what are they hoping to achieve and what are they feeling? What are we not hearing by only hearing from the police and, and the government? So young men that I met wherever it was in France had the, the same ideas, the same discourse around what's happening. And the first thing they communicated is just sheer anger, just fury. For them, it was it was something that was bound to happen, and if it was not Nahel's death, it was it would be some somebody else because they're so used to that climate of tension, that climate of harassment. And in the words, now we had proof. Finally, there was a video showing what's happening to us, the way they talk to us, the way they don't value our life, and the mode of actions that they chose. They're very aware that it's going to get them front page of the news. They know They know that. That's what they told me all over France is, we are doing this, we're breaking everything because we know that's the only way they'll talk about us. They talk about us when we are dead or when we break things. Otherwise, we are invisible. So that's what they communicated. And, you know, some of them had debates uh, in between themselves that were quite touching because I think we also forget that these are young men. Some of them are 15. Some of them had tears in their eyes and said, I just feel overwhelmed. I just don't know what to do. I am scared. I'm scared for my life. I'm scared a friend of mine is going to die and we need to do something. And I think it's important to put put them back, quote unquote, in their place, that they are young men, they are teenagers, they have feelings, they are scared, they're not just angry, they are terrified. And a lot of them want to express sadness and shock. And that's the way they do it. And they're also aware of the fact that they target their neighborhoods mainly. But they also know that that's a way one they'll be talked about and second they won't they won't put too many people at risk because they're very scared that if they go out of their neighborhoods to do this then police response would be even greater than it was and then create even more problems or that they'll be talked about in the media as um, even more dangerous than they already uh, considered so that's that's something that they communicate and you know in between them then they don't necessarily agree so they want to support each other they they're aware of what they're doing but sometimes they have reactions and i remember one of them from Paris, and this really stuck uh, in my mind because it shows you how french these young men are a young man in paris who's of algerian descent said to his friends i don't think we should have broken things i think we should just have gone on strike <laughs> that just shows you how <laughs> and um, and they they don't really have a strategy which of course how could you expect such young these young men to have a strategy it's it's a bit too much to ask but they feel like if it doesn't stop meaning police brutality if there's no step taken into at least 
considering that this is a problem because it's important to remind ourselves that outside of France if you look at the media coverage everybody seems to have understood that there's a problem of structural racism in France but here we are still debating whether that's the case we are still debating whether police brutality is a, a reality or it is a lie fabricated by dangerous young men and this is the state of our debate and i'm sure jean will talk more about this later and they say what they want is for the president to talk and say that they are human that their lives count and that something will be done yeah jean do you want to take that up Yeah, no, I think that's very 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 well put. I mean, I think that is the sort of core of the issues that this is a, a group of individuals who are not seen as fully human. And again, like I think what you're seeing in this present moment, which is maybe a little bit different from 2005, is that there's more sort of international media, you know, scholars placed outside of France such as myself who are really, you know, an an activist who've been doing this work for decades who are really calling attention to the fact that this is a case of racism, that this, this phenomenon, these type of these things keep happening, reveals the fact that France really has a problem with racism that it has to address. And so, you know, there's a way in which I think it's becoming harder and harder for French government officials to deny the racism that's very present in French society that's structuring events such as this. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, you know, this week my my colleague Lydia Wilson wrote a piece, I guess it was last week, about you know, about these instances and and as she was preparing for it, she asked me to go back through Le Monde and and look at the ways in which the the various stories described Nahel, right? Because everywhere else in, in in international media, you you know, he's described as a young man of Algerian origin or of Algerian Moroccan origin. And and as I was going back through the monde, there's there's no descriptors, and and it struck me that even if it's not spelled out that he was of Algerian origin, in a way, they it doesn't even need to be right. It's it's about these other kind of more subtle euphemistic ways that that people from these areas or, or of these ethnicities are described. And I'm wondering if either of you can can talk about. The kind of euphemisms that the French media uses to to talk about these issues. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I'll just if I could just jump in, it's not just the French media; it's just the general ways that, again, because the sort of because colorblindness is so pervasive that just everyday people will use these kind of euphemisms to really refer to people that they mean as non-white. So whether it's someone from the banlieue. Or it's using the category of Muslim, which um, is supposed to be become the sort of ethno-racial signifier, even though there's lots of diversity among people who are Muslim, both in France and, and globally. And so these serve as a way to mark racial distinctions without having to. So just to give a quick example, there's a lot of research, for example, that has shown that when there are audit studies of CVs with a sort of, you know, an address in the banlieue, like the 93, for example, versus one in Paris, the one in the banlieue, even if the CVs are identical, is less likely to be chosen. So there's just, you know, because that's signifying that someone is not white. And so there's these markers of difference that are still used in this sensibly colorblind context. Another example is just even the way the French don't use the term noir, like they'll say black, like the English word, because it's like such a distancing from the fact or sort of a way to say that racism is something that happens in the United States or in quote unquote Anglophone countries, but does it happen in France? 
And the final thing that I always find really fascinating, but specifically about this question of the French media and kind of how you were said they don't they don't mention Al's Arab ancestry is that they don't have a problem doing that at all when they're talking about incidents of police violence in the United States. So if you look at coverage about the death of George Floyd or Freddie Gray in 2015 or Michael Brown in 2014, et cetera, et cetera, they have no problem saying that the, that the U.S. police or the police in whatever U.S. state killed someone who is African-American or killed someone because they're African-American. So there is a sort of marketing of race, but it's always with this sort of idea that it's something that exists elsewhere, particularly in the United States, not within France itself. Yeah, that's so interesting. I also wanted to talk about the way that that the actions themselves are described and the, and the words that are used around this. You know, everywhere in French media and, and in Anglophone media as well, the word that's being used to describe what is happening in France right now is riots. And yet I, you know, it strikes, it strikes me that um, the same kind of a, aggressive protests coming from a predominantly white, you know, aggrieved community, maybe let's say like the Gilets jaunes protests, they're called protests. Why? Why is that? I mean, is that yet another form of, of racialization of, of these kinds of incidences? Like what? Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about that. I would say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very interesting, you know, particularly from the vantage point of being in the United States, how France is always seen as a place where everyone's, you know, protesting, kind of as Sarazad said earlier, they're always sort of protesting or boycotting something. But for some reason, in incidents like this, it's framed completely differently. It's it's using this term of riots versus of rebellion or an uprising or a protest itself, even though it comes from oftentimes very similar sources of anger. And I think the only thing that really explains that is a different is, is a different racial and ethnic backgrounds of the people who are on the streets doing the protesting. Yeah. Shahrazad, as as you were talking to the the young men who were out on the streets, you know, you mentioned that they have differing ideas about what they should be doing. I love, I love the young man who was like, maybe we should have just gone on strike, which is so intensely French. How do they feel about the way that that the the media is talking about them? You know, you said that they that they recognize that the only way that they get seen is if they, you know, if they break things. Have they have they have they said anything to you about kind of how they're talked about in the press or I don't know. The, the way they talked about in the press is is not. I, I, I will say it's almost none of their concerns in the sense that they knew, they do not trust journalists. They don't trust them at at all. The conversations I've had, and myself being a journalist, I've had to gain their trust, and it took a while. But they 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 don't care. They just say, "Oh, we know we know they're gonna portray us like we're savages, and we don't care. We just want them to talk about us because the politicians have to do something." So for them, the media's portrayal is just yet another way to be spoken about. For them, the daily reality of being harassed by the police is so much more concrete and so much harsher that they do not care what the media thinks about them. It's it. it they, they're going through so much violence that they almost feel like they have other priorities. But if anything, they talked about quite a lot about the yellow vests and they said, 
we we went to see we went because we also have difficulties our moms have difficulties so we went to see what's happening with the yarubas and we know that what they did did not work and one of them even said you know during the yellow vest protest they asked they asked at on tv where the blacks and arabs are but we wonder where the yellow vests are for us because they also went through the same thing with the police and they also you know some of them were wounded and they're very much aware of the differences of media coverage, but they do not trust the media and have almost long finished mourning the way they'd be portrayed. Mm, so interesting. Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask both of you a sort of a final question, which is, do you think that France can tackle racial profiling without first having a major reckoning about race? Charizard, I'll I'll go to you first. If I personally feel like the past six six years have made this even more difficult in the sense that police brutality has now entered quote unquote the mainstream because sections of the population who are not of the same racial backgrounds have seen and experienced police brutality. We've seen it the latest example is during the, the pension protest. So I feel like there might be a chance that now this debate around police brutality and race is shifted towards police brutality in general and race taken out of it. And I think there is a danger of that happening and that whenever race and police brutality are put together, it will be portrayed not as a problem of race and police brutality, but a problem of safety from communities that have always been um, a threat to the order of society. So I feel like there's a danger for this police brutality debate to become segmented and hence to be less efficient instead of actually showing to everyone that we have a problem because even sections who are not of the same racial background are experiencing this reality more and more. Yeah. And Jean, over to you. Do you think France will be able to, to have a, a reckoning or that they'll be able to tackle profiling without a, a racial reckoning first? Yeah, I think that's an important question. And unfortunately, I think it's impossible and to be at the risk of sounding too pessimistic, deeply unlikely, because I think part of, again, you know, this goes again to what we've just been discussing about the French Republican uh, model, but also to just the the various ways that France continues to not reckon with its colonial history. So I think before they has a reckon, it reckons with race and reckon, and addresses racial profiling. It really has to reckon with the ongoing legacies of of its colonial past, which I think France has been very active or invested in avoiding dealing with. So that's really in my in my estimation the first step. Fantastic, Jean Beeman, Charizard Dua, thank you so much for joining us today on the lead. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines Magazine. If you'd like to hear more from our guests, you can find Shahrazad on Twitter at Shahrazad D and Jean at Jean23Bean. You can also read Shahrazad's article on the roots of France's riots on our website, newlinesmag.com. I've linked to the article in the show notes. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Aaron Brown. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for joining us today.